For Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. Pleasure as always. Hey, it's great to be here. Some very interesting stories on our docket for this week, including a $20,000 reward for a woman who was arrested illegally for not holding onto an escalator handrail. Am I reading that right? You're reading that right. Uh, so this uh, poor woman back in 2009 uh, was trying to take a subway in Montreal. Uh, and uh, she was taking an escalator down. I, I sort of picture the Donald Trump uh, presidential uh, uh, campaign announcement. So she's going down the escalator in the Montreal uh, subway, uh, and a police officer, a Constable Camacho, uh, yells at her to hold on to the handrail. Uh, and his motivation for this, it would appear, is that there is a sign, which interestingly, the Supreme Court of Canada, I guess we're now in the age of uh, multimedia, they've actually included a copy of the sign at the end of their re reasons for judgment. And it's this sort of helpful, it's all in French, helpful yes. attention sign showing a person holding the handrail and holding the hand of a child. Uh, and so the officer commands that she hold on to the handrail. She ignores him. He yells at her again to hold on to the handrail. Uh, and uh, then she gets to the bottom uh, of the uh, escalator, and the uh, police officer comes over to her uh, and uh, tells her that she is under arrest. Uh, he takes her into a, a holding room, uh, puts handcuffs on her behind her back. Wow. Uh, at one point, if you read the French translation, uh, he then said he wanted to search her um, purse, she de he, the officer is demanding identification. The woman was saying things to the effect of, you can't arrest me, and I don't have to do that, and... Uh, and the officer at one point stepped on her foot, took her bag from her, rummaged through her bag to find identification, uh, and then issued her a ticket for not holding the handrail. Huh. Uh, and here's the thing. There's no law requiring you, not surprisingly, to hold the handrail. It's a helpful <laughs> pictorial suggestion of uh, sort of a, a safety tip. How does one issue a citation for an offense that is not an offense? Well, he wrote out a ticket uh, alleging that she had failed to hold the handrail uh, and gave it to her. And off to court the thing went. Um, and one of the issues that arose, uh, because there was this ticket and then a suggestion or an allegation that she was obstructing the police officer by not holding on to this handrail as she was uh, directed to and not providing her identification. Now, one of the legal issues that arose in the predecessor to this case, this is one dealing with her civil claim against the police officer in the city, yes. um, was the issue of whether the police have the authority to uh, arrest somebody for a non-existent offense. Because the language in the criminal code speaks about a police officer having reasonable grounds to believe that somebody's committed an offense. That's what's required to arrest somebody. Yes. Uh, and it's well accepted that as long as their grounds are reasonable, they could be wrong. Like, for example, if somebody says to the police officer, uh, that's the man that robbed the bank. There he goes over there. The police officer could run over and arrest the person. Yeah, you don't and want them to get out, away. Yeah. Sorry, I got the wrong guy. The other guy went around the corner. The police officer's not liable for anything. Okay. But what about the circumstance where the reasonable ground, mistaken reasonable grounds are with respect to whether this is an offense at all. <laughs> and ultimately the conclusion was, no, you can't be completely mistaken about whether it's an offense or not. And with respect to Constable Camacho, the, the evidence came out that the, uh, uh, the police training uh, in Montreal there uh, included some training apparently that uh, disobeying a sign would constitute an offense. Um, the training was just wrong. The, the Supreme Court of Canada pointed out that... Um, 
Some of the signs were things for which there was an actual legal requirement to do them, probably things like, you know, pay your fee to get on the yeah. uh, subway, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, amusingly, the Supreme Court of Canada talked about the fact that there were some helpful hints that a reasonable person might have used to figure out whether this was actually an offense, uh, including, this I thought was amusing, uh, some of the signs which actually were legal requirements, like things like paying your fee to get on the subway, yes. uh, included a picture of a gavel, although judges in Canada don't use gavels, but... Nonetheless, it would appear that the training of the police officer or police officers there was really totally inadequate uh, because Constable uh, Camacho thought that all of these pictorial signs created offenses. And so he was busily uh, enforcing them and arresting people and ticketing people for doing it. I find it curious that a province that defends its own culture from unreasonable intrusions from Americans or even Anglophone Canada as closely as the culture in Quebec does would use a gavel as a symbol for what is a law when in fact Canadian justices do not use gavels. Yes, that was not very well thought out. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court of Canada thought that might have been a helpful hint uh, to the police officer that some of the other helpful suggestions posted around the subway station didn't make them legal requirements. So... The case which got decided by the Supreme Court of Canada just last week uh, was the civil claim. This woman who was wrongfully arrested after eventually being acquitted of the bylaw infractions and the allegation that she was obstructing the police officer and uh, trying to enforce the non-existent law, sued. Uh, And for the first two levels of court, she was unsuccessful. The trial judge and the Quebec Court of Appeal Uh, refused her claim, uh, saying that, look, uh, she was the author of her own misfortune. She should have just followed the orders of this poorly trained police officer uh, and turned over her ID and stopped and, uh, you know, allowed the search of her bag and so forth. But the Supreme Court of Canada roundly disagreed with that conclusion. Uh, And the case, I think, is an important one going forward uh, because it has some important language in it about what should reasonably be expected and how we should deal with things like this. And the Supreme Court of Canada says that, look, in a free and democratic society, no one should accept or even expect to be subject to unjustified state intrusion. Interference with freedom of movement, just like an invasion of privacy, must not be trivialized. Um, And um, the uh, Supreme Court of Canada uh, uh, awarded $20,000 in uh, damages uh, to this woman for her uh, wrongful, unlawful uh, arrest, uh, as well as court costs all the way through the proceeding, from the trial to the Court of Appeal and all the way off to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I expect that's going to amount to much more than $20,000. Indeed. The takeaway here is, I think, those important um, messages from the uh, court. Uh, and they talk about things like, they say this, an unlawful arrest, even for a short time, cannot be considered one of the ordinary annoyances, anxieties, or fears that people living in society must accept. You just don't need to put up with that. Um, And uh, they also make the point uh, that a well-informed person who's being ordered to do things by the police uh, doesn't uh, have to simply uh, accept all of those things and have their bag gone through and foot stood on and be handcuffed in all of this. Uh, You need not just put up with all of that. 
uh, you're permitted not to follow unlawful orders by the police. Now, as an ordinary person who's not a lawyer and may be unsure of what is and is not a lawful order, I'd be very hesitant to refuse to follow an order. What happens if I'm wrong? Well, you're going to have your foot stood on. You're going to be put in handcuffs behind your back. You may be... Uh, all kinds of things must happen, might happen to you, which is what happened to this woman. I mean, oh, okay. in, in the moment, uh, you have to remember that. The police have guns and nightsticks and handcuffs and pepper spray and tasers and, and all of this. And, uh, you know, eventually this might be sorted out a decade later and you might wind up with a $20,000 award in court after much effort. Uh, but uh, you better be sure uh, and well informed that, uh, in fact, this isn't one of the signs which had the little gavel at the bottom of it. And, <laughs> actually related to that. a defense. So, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> um, the, probably the practical takeaway, I suspect, is going to be some better training for uh, police, uh, and also, I expect, uh, that where there are cases in the future of things like, you know, unlawful uh, arrests or, uh, you know, arrests for things that aren't offenses and so on, I expect that this case is going to be pointed to uh, when people bring those matters to court, saying, look, don't trivialize this. You don't have to be. You don't have to put up with being unlawfully arrested, and you're going to get some uh, damages that aren't simply trivial. Uh, with the hope being that we don't have to uh, put up with uh, being. Uh, you know, it's not an ordinary uh, annoyance that you need to put up with getting arrested on your way down the uh, subway escalator. <laughs> I uh, I was monitoring an appearance that you made on the CFAX Morning Show uh, earlier this week with Al Farabee talking about a case and specifically insurance coverage for ICBC. I think many people might be under the mistaken impression that regardless of their conduct, they are still insured while behind the wheel if they are holders of a policy. Not so. Not so. And I think this is something which is very important for people to know just in their day-to-day dealings and their uh, behavior. Uh, But it also, I think, uh, may help explain uh, the case that we were talking about earlier this week uh, involving the uh, tragic uh, accident with the young girl who was hit in the crosswork, seriously injured. Mm. Um, And uh, the... Um, one of the issues or one of the implications of that case, which may explain why the matter is for trial, uh, and uh, I think something it's just important people know about, um, is the concept of a person being in breach of their insurance coverage. And what the way it works is that in, in BC, because we have uh, a government uh, monopoly insurance company, the uh, conditions of your insurance are actually set out in a a motor vehicle insurance act and then regulations it's sort of the equivalent of you know the policy for your house insurance right if you get your house insurance policy uh you'll have this big thick thing that's 40 pages long if you flip through it it's various uh uh you know efforts by the insurance company to limit their liability few of those 40 pages are uh for your benefit Um, And so we have the equivalent thing for ICBC insurance in that Insurance Motor Vehicle Act and the associated regulations. In the regulations, uh, under Section 55 of those regulations, uh, that's entitled Breach uh, of Conditions. And what that is, is it goes on for several pages setting out in what circumstances your insurance coverage that you paid for is no longer valid. Essentially, if you do the things listed here or you are convicted of various things that are listed here, you don't have insurance anymore. You will be personally responsible for any uh, loss um, suffered. It may be that ICBC pays out the other party and then comes after you to recover all of that. So you may be on the hook uh, for the rest of your life if you breach the terms of your insurance policy. 
the various things that can lead to a breach of your insurance policy include things like involving yourself in a race or a speed test. So let's say two people at a light accelerate off, somebody hits somebody or goes off the road, you're not covered. Um, you're also in breach if you're attempting to evade the police. That's probably not a, uh, a great surprise, but if you try to evade the police, uh, you may also be in breach. Uh, by the way, there were also some recent changes to the um, British Columbia civil forfeiture legislation, uh, which are contemplated to allow them to forfeit vehicles of people that do that. Like if you don't stop for the police, in addition to having no insurance coverage, uh, you may also find uh, that your car is being forfeited uh, to the province. So bear that in mind. Don't flee the police. Um, other things that will put you in breach, uh, if you're uh, involved in an illicit or prohibited trade or transportation. Now, There's an interesting, interesting one. You might want to think very carefully about that in the context of things like ride-sharing, insurance requirements for that, licensing requirements. You better think very carefully about it. Um, another one, if an insurer is not authorized or qualified by law to operate the vehicle, think very carefully about that in that context as well. Yes. And then in the context of the uh, case which uh, has gotten some, a fair bit of attention in Victoria, that tragic uh, case of the child in the crosswalk, yes. um, you are also in breach of your policy if you are convicted of a motor vehicle-related criminal code offense. Uh, and uh, the particular local case, the charge is dangerous driving causing bodily harm. And so if there's a conviction for that, it means that the driver has no insurance and will be personally responsible for uh, all of the uh, costs of caring for that uh, for the child in the future, which could be uh, uh, very significant and would be essentially sort of a lifetime obligation to be paying for those things. Um, you can also be in breach if you do things like if you drive your vehicle while you're prohibited from driving your vehicle. That's also a breach. Uh, and you can be in uh, another thing, which is one I think worth knowing about for people. You're also not covered for intentional acts of violence, interestingly committed while sane, by means of a motor vehicle. Hmm. So that would mean, for example, if you intentionally hit somebody, like if you take your car and ram somebody, get into a road rage thing and hit yeah. somebody... You are not covered. Uh, insur and that one, I think, would be a matter of general principle as well. Insurance is to cover accidents, not intentional acts of violence. Sort of like you can get fire insurance for your house, but it doesn't cover you if you go out and intentionally burn your own house down. The caveat that it has to be intentional and done while sane, is that superfluous? Because I didn't think someone who lacked capacity could intentionally do anything, or am I wrong? Well, I mean, I think you could have a state of affairs where somebody, for example, thinks they're being, I don't know, chased by a dragon, hmm. uh, and so they are intentionally trying to, uh, you know, run oh, okay. into the I dragon. Okay. Yeah, okay. I did that. I uh, but, uh, you know, there was no dragon. It was a uh, 1978 Pinto or something. Uh, and uh, in that circumstance, you're probably still okay. I think we'd all agree. Uh, but uh, the takeaway from all of this, and I think it comes as a total surprise to most people who weren't spending their days flipping through the Insurance Vehicle Act regulations, mm -hmm. is that when you buy your ICBC insurance, that does not mean... Uh, that you are covered no matter what. If you're prohibited, if you commit a criminal offense, if you're found to have... Because the dangerous driving one is an interesting one, right? Uh, these dangerous driving is defined under the criminal code as a, a marked departure from the standard of care of a reasonably prudent driver. That's how that's defined. Okay. So what it really means is that if you engage in 
that sort of uh, type of driving that's a marked departure, right? Maybe somebody's, you know, texting, speeding, doing this sort of thing. You may find that uh, if you have an accident, you are personally on the hook for it. And so wow. I think that's an important thing for people to know. Um, another one uh, is this. Uh, in addition to a circumstance where somebody's convicted of impaired driving, mm -hmm. even if you're not charged or convicted, um, if the ICBC could simply establish that you were intoxicated by drugs or alcohol to such an extent that you were incapable of proper control of your vehicle, you're also in breach. Um, so there are several pages of circumstances, some clear, some open to, I think, more interpretation. Some of those things like, uh, you know, not authorized uh, to or qualify to operate or an illicit or prohibited trade or transportation. Uh, and uh, you should be broadly aware of these things Absolutely. because if you uh, engage in any of that sort of conduct, uh, you're putting yourself at really serious financial uh, jeopardy because you have no insurance. All right, let's take a break. Legally Speaking continues in just a moment on CFAX 1070. It's Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. And it's Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we go into the third story of the week. The Law Society, Michael, has uh, very careful prescriptions and regulations on how lawyers such as yourself may or may not conduct themselves as they undertake business and communicate with the public. Uh, communication with the public at issue in this next story. Yeah, this is going to be a very interesting one to watch how it plays out. And what was announced was a uh, citation uh, for a lawyer. So it doesn't mean that they've concluded that the lawyer's done something wrong, but the lawyer's alleged to have done something wrong. So okay. what it's likely to produce will be a, a hearing to sort out whether that's so or not. But the the uh, nature of the citation is an interesting one. And it arises out of a interview that a lawyer gave to the media. Uh, and the citation by the Law Society alleges that the lawyer disclosed confidential information of a former client that was contained in a crown disclosure package subject to uh, contrary to a bunch of alleged rules and then this language of an implied undertaking. So let's break down what's going on here. Okay. So first of all, the, the allegation here is that the lawyer disclosed information of a former client uh, and in that regard, lawyers have a bunch of uh, rules surrounding uh, keeping client information confidential, right? Not surprising to most people. Um, and the rules say that a lawyer at all times must hold in strict confidence all information concerning the business and affairs of a client acquired in the course of a professional relationship and must not divulge any such information except, and then a list of various exceptions, things like uh, it being authorized by the client, required by a court, um, requested by the law society, they exempt themselves, uh, or otherwise uh, permitted by the rule. And that obligation to keep information uh, confidential extends to former clients. So uh, a lawyer is not permitted to go out and uh, reveal information about somebody even if they're no longer a client of the lawyer. Uh, and here, the allegation is that the lawyer disclosed information about, interestingly, a former client. Um, now, this is, I think, something people should know about. There is an exception uh, to that uh, duty to keep information confidential. And here's what that is. A lawyer may, so it's optional, it's up to the lawyer, may disclose confidential information, 
but must not disclose more information than is required when the lawyer believes on reasonable grounds that there is an imminent risk of death or serious bodily harm uh, and and disclosure is necessary to prevent the death or harm. So what that means, for example, is that if you went and saw a lawyer and said, look, I'm going to go kill my wife tonight. I'm doing it at 8 o'clock. Here's the gun. Um, You know, I'll be calling you at 9.30. Uh, uh, The lawyer in that circumstance would be permitted to, to the extent necessary, disclose information to ensure that the person isn't killed. So solicitor-client confidentiality isn't limitless. No. Uh, It is close to, it is as close to uh, that as one could imagine, but uh, there are exceptions, including that one, that would permit a lawyer to disclose some information to save somebody's life uh, if you know that that's uh, necessary. The other sections that the Law Society cited here in this citation uh, deal with uh, the circumstances in which a lawyer is permitted to communicate with the public. Uh, and uh, I must say, I'm, I'm happy that that's permitted, or I might be in trouble right now. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and here's the language used by the Law Society rules in that regard. It says that, provided that there is no infringement of the lawyer's obligation to the client, the profession, the courts, or the administration of justice, a lawyer may communicate information to the media and may make public appearances and statements. Um, so there are a whole bunch of things bound up in that in terms of sort of what might be permitted and not permitted. There are some express uh, prohibitions on uh, providing uh, information that would interfere with the fair tr- a fair trial or hearing. Uh, and so, for example, it would be improper for a, a lawyer to go out and uh, make uh, statements that might interfere with a, a jury trial, for example, right? If somebody was to come out and make statements about things that occurred when the jury wasn't in the room or things that weren't in evidence trying to interfere with them, that would be a problem. So I know the language is a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing a party's right to a fair trial or hearing. What does materially mean? Does that mean it flips the result? Or I think it would be sort of in a substantial way, not okay. sort of anything okay. that one could imagine, uh, but it would have to be in some meaningful okay. way. Uh, the other language which is uh, interesting in this citation refers to this implied undertaking. And what's that? Uh, that comes out of a case uh, from BC back in 2011, and it was that legislative uh, BC Rail legislative raid case. People mm-hmm. will remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, there was a whole bunch of disclosure material given to uh, the accused to allow them to defend themselves. And ultimately, uh, there was an order made that the that material be returned at the end of the proceedings. Uh, because they want the accused wish to keep it, uh, to use it for other purposes, I guess civil litigation or other things. Uh, and the court found that there was this implied undertaking, like an obligation, uh, to only use the material for the purpose of making full answer in defense to the criminal charge and not for some other purpose. Interesting. Uh, We're out of time. We're going to have to wrap things up for this week. There it is. Well, I, I'm just going to take some comfort in the express uh, permission to make public statements and things and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, bear in mind that there are some limits on what a lawyer is permitted to say. And we are very fortunate to benefit from your ability to do so every week on Thursday here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always. Thank you. Michael Mulligan during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070.